is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, and we've done several, Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and now we join Alex Cortez, who brings us our latest in the Rule of Law series. I tell more people today that if a dairy farmer goes to a psychiatrist and lays on that bench and that psychiatrist asks him questions before you're done, he's going to want to commit you. Because there's got to be something wrong with you. To be clear, this Maryland dairy farmer Randy Sowers is, including himself, in that category too. There absolutely has to be something wrong with somebody that deals with what we deal with every day for no more than we get out of it. We bought these farms three years ago. I mean, it's just going to be a burden on me and my kids to get these farms paid for. And then if their kids, you know, decide to stay in farming, one of these days they might, you know, get some benefit from them. But right now the farms are costing us more than we can make off of them. There's farmers dropping over. I think the bank sent 10 notices out last week of foreclosures. We've got a neighbor up here they foreclosed on in January. It's like land. You don't make farmers usually. I mean, farmers are born and raised, and they know what to do, and they have the heart to do it. I mean, most people, you know, wouldn't even consider doing what we do, and it's seven days a week. I mean, you don't get a break. For 38 years that I've been doing this, I've gotten up as early as 11.15 at night to milk. Wait, did he just say get up at night? Who gets up at night? Besides folks, of course, who have night shifts, but that's not Randy's situation. Well, I try to get to bed by 7 or 7.30. It's pretty hard when it's still light outside, but that's what I have to do. In the early years, I didn't have any help. I was getting at 11.15, but then I'd get done about 7 or 8 in the morning. Then I'd sleep till 10 o'clock and get up and get back to work. But the last 20 years, we've been getting up at midnight, me and my wife, and we milk the first shift of cows, and we usually get back home about 4 o'clock. We don't milk them all anymore, but we do milk the first shift because what I found out was over the years when I depend on somebody else to get in there early, they don't show up, and then it makes the whole day go bad. So. I just decided I might as well just do it myself. That way you get the day started and the people supposed to, you know, come after me, they better be there. I'm gonna go get them out of bed because I know where they are. Since we retired in December, we're gonna milk five mornings a week, but the other two we do farmer's markets. It's pretty nice through the winter though because we don't have the one Sunday market through the winter and I got to sleep in on Sunday morning. (laughs) Some idea of retirement. (laughs) And a couple of years ago, his government tried to throw him an early retirement party. So we were had a store on the farm, and we were doing farmer's market, and we were handling a lot of cash. And we just deposited it in the bank. I always wondered whether the government should ever show up someday. I wanted to know where all the cash came from, which didn't bother me because I knew it was all legal, so I didn't worry about it too much. Paid taxes on it, just like anything else. I mean, we were depositing it in the bank every week. Uh, This summer, we were doing probably five farmer's markets a week, and we were bringing in somewhere around that 10,000 mark every week. I mean, sometimes we went over that, and sometimes we had special events. And this one particular time, we had our festival, so we had a lot of money to deposit that week, and she went in. She being Randy's bride and partner, Karen. When I tried to deposit, it was 
twelve or fourteen thousand dollars or something like that, and the bank took it. But the teller told her, you know, it would help her out if you keep these deposits under ten thousand dollars, and she would not fill out paperwork. So that's what my wife did. Not knowing that a federal law called the Bank Secrecy Act requires banks to report all transactions $10,000 and up to the federal government. A law originally intended to make it easier to find folks who were laundering money, running illegal drug and gambling operations, and to charge them with much larger crimes. But it still was unwise for this bank teller to have the Sowers do this because technically, although rarely pursued, what they did was an illegal act on its own. What they call structuring. Structuring your deposits so that they're below the reporting requirement. So it was definitely every Monday she was paying, putting in $9,500 to $9,900 in cash in this account for 32 weeks. So we had a lawyer on staff at that time, and he was there that morning. February 29th, 2012. For some reason, he just left. And a store called me and said there was some government people over there that needed to talk to me. And I went in there was two treasury agents. You know, showing me their badges and they had their guns on and, you know, one talked to me about a bank account. So I tried to call my lawyer right away and he didn't answer the phone. So I, like I said, I still didn't have a problem because I didn't think I had anything to hide. So I went and sat down at the office and they started asking me questions. And I don't know what the questions were anymore except for the last one they asked me. He said, where'd you get all this cash? And they knew about the Sowers' cash because through a controversial legal maneuver called civil asset forfeiture, they had already seized his bank account with $63,000 in it at the time without even convicting him of a crime, which turns upside down a fundamental principle of the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Randy was made guilty before anything was proven. Although these IRS agents didn't tell Randy that they had seized his bank account, yet they still needed to trap him. And um, I said, well, you know, we do store and farmer's markets and you know, some weeks we get as much as twelve or $14,000. Well, they didn't ask me any more questions after that because that's the only answer, the question they needed me to answer to say that sometime I had more than 10 and I wasn't depositing it. The government agents tricked Randy and got him to admit to committing a crime that he didn't even know was a crime. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Sowers' story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with our rule of law story on the federal government seizing the bank account of a dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, and for simply following his bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold that legally requires her to file lengthy paperwork to the government. Let's pick up where we last left off. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? Well, in 1994, the Supreme Court said that the answer was no. That the word willfully in the Bank Secrecy Act should be interpreted as a person who knew that it was illegal to structure payments below the reporting threshold. It wasn't simply enough to show that the defendant knew about the reporting requirement, which the Sowers didn't really know either. The teller just told them that it would help her avoid the paperwork. But this ruling was unacceptable to government prosecutors, and they convinced Congress to amend the wording of the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could prosecute Americans like Randy who don't know that structuring is illegal. So they had me on structuring because not that I knew there was a law that I said I had to deposit every cent I got every week. Maybe I spent it on something else that week. And it still didn't have more than $10,000, but it really didn't matter to them. And they were pretty nice, I guess nice. But they said, you know, we can see you're a legitimate business. We really don't think you're a laundry, money launderer or drug dealer or nothing like that. But now, since it's gone this far, you're going to have to go through the system to see if you can get your money back. Gone this far as their boss, then Maryland U.S. Attorney Rod Rosenstein, was already committed to the case. And there's no way that they thought that they could get him to back down on it. A judge had already issued a warrant for the seizure of Randy's bank account. Randy's money was this close to being theirs. Once they knew that I was not a drug dealer or a money launderer, they should have just gave me my money back and thanked me for my service to this country, and that would have been the end of it. But they don't. They got your money and they want it. And, you know, over this period of time, it's not the IRS that gets a lot of that money. It's the local people that, you know, find this problem. They get their cut, too. Everybody gets their cut. That's how they make their budgets. So if they take all that money away, how are they going to pay their, you know, all these uh, things they get because of all the structuring money? And the Department of Justice in Maryland is particularly active in pursuing this structuring money. In the fiscal year 2011, Maryland brought 14 of the nation's 99 structuring cases, 14% of them, even though they only make up 1.8% of the nation's population. So supposedly, Maryland citizens are eight times more likely to be committing crimes than the rest of us, or... Something else is going on. Rod Rosenstein is on the record as saying that anti-structuring efforts are, quote, an increasing area of emphasis for the Justice Department, and there has been an influx of resources to investigate it. Thus, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't an uptick in prosecutions. 
So my lawyer called whoever the prosecutor was on the case. Rod Rosenstein actually was the Department of Justice in Maryland at the time. So I'd like to see him go to jail now. I'll go visit him. But he called him. One of Rod's deputies. He said, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate and, you know, we'll probably keep half that money. We might be able to negotiate that down some, but, you know, usually, you know, we'll negotiate some kind of a, a deal. Treating it all too casually, like it's negotiating something at a garage sale, not $30,000 of a business's of family's livelihood so somehow and i don't know how it all came down but there was another lawyer that showed up and he'd been you know working on this structuring thing for a long time but they all told me you know to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody about it well i didn't call the newspapers but when i went to the farmers markets that weekend everybody knew that the government stole my money Everybody walked up the table and they wanted to know how my week goes. I told them the story. <laughs> and they, they they couldn't believe it. So it wasn't too long after that that uh, I got a call from the Baltimore City Paper and he was questioning me about, you know, this, because he saw the docs come out of the federal court in Baltimore. And I said, you know, I'd love to tell you this story, but my lawyer said, until we get this thing settled, I better just not say nothing. That's what the government wanted everybody to say nothing so they can steal your money and nobody knows what's going on. So uh, he said, well, you know, if that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm going to do this story and it don't look good on your part if I write from what the government says. So his government's allowed to speak about him, but they say that he's not allowed to respond? Because people already thought we'd done something wrong. I mean, everybody, her, her parents thought we'd done something wrong. I think my parents might have <laughs> thought we'd done something wrong. And so I told him the whole story. So <clears throat> when we got our settlement papers, you know, we knew from the case on the Eastern Shore with the uh, Taylor family, we knew what their settlement was, but my settlement was different. I was going to admit that I did something wrong in the settlement, and I wasn't going to do it. So when my lawyer called them, he says, because your client went to the press. And he sent us an email that said it. Rosenstein's deputy, Stefan Casella, actually wrote an email that they were treated differently because, quote, Mr. Taylor did not give an interview to the press, admitting as clear as day that the government is acting according to a rule of vengeance, not according to the American promise of the rule of law. So he said wasn't going to do be any negotiating. You know, they were keeping close to $30,000 and it wasn't any negotiating now since I went to the press. If we would have fought them, if we would have fought them, they would have got, took the whole $360,000 we deposited in that checking account that year. So that was another thing they were holding against us. They said, you can fight us, but you know, you're not going to win, and then we're going to want $360,000. This is what you call blackmail. 
Either pay us 30000 or we're going to come after you for more, 360000 And by the way, fighting us in court will cost you a lot more than 30000 so you might as well just pay us right now. A pretty good business to be in if you're the government. They can do this all day long and do. But not a great business proposition if you're Randy and Karen. Especially when you're trying to do your actual business of farming. It's a no-win situation for them. They lose no matter what. So the Sours decided to forfeit $30,000 of their seized money to the government and try to move on with their lives. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You can't fight them. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases, and my lawyer got me in contact with them, and they came out and we had a meeting about it. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens when liberty lawyers get involved, and that's what the Institute for Justice's lawyers are. They protect people's property rights from the government. And always remember why the Constitution was formed, because we all know that most of our cops and prosecutors are good guys. But the bad ones, and boy, there were some bad ones here, folks. And you know it, right? You know it. When we come back, the law on behalf of the citizens starts to take action. Randy Sauer's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will send you our five best stories of the week. And they'll be in transcript form, so you can read them or you can listen to them. And by the way, if you have your story about government power coming in on your life, if you've settled on an IRS form, if you settled for something when you didn't think you were guilty, Send those stories to us. We'll run them down because this is happening all over the country and it's happening a lot more than you think. Again, this is Our American Stories. When we return, the dairy farmer Randy Sowers shaken down by his own government, a guy just trying to get along every day like the rest of us. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our rule of law story on the federal government seizing over $30,000 of dairy farmer Randy Sowers' money for simply following his own bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold. And now, let's get back to the story. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. But it was probably a year or two later when I got a call from the House Ways and Means Committee and said they were 
they were having a hearing on structuring. You don't know if I would testify. And this was only like two or three days before, you know, the it happened. And I think, you know, they were trying to get people to testify, but they're still afraid to testify. Understandably afraid of putting the government's target on their back again. Randy told Congress that he would testify in their big city only 90 minutes away from his home, but one that the Sours didn't like to go to. Oh, and very, we delivered milk down there a couple times. But, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. So what we do, we'd milk and then we'd get in the car and we'd go down to Institute for Justice uh, Arlington, Virginia. office in Arlington and we'd park and then sleep in the car for a couple hours so we didn't have to deal with the traffic. And then they would take us to the to D.C. for the hearings. Well, we got to eat hearings. That was the highlight. <laughs> yeah, we ate high hops on the way down, but... It doesn't get any more American than that. Milking in the middle of the night, driving still in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. Then you got to make some time for IHOP. Then just a little bit of sleep in a parking lot while you don't shower before you testify before some congressmen who are in fancy suits and ties while you in a checkered short sleeve shirt no suit, no jacket, no tie. You take on your government. So me and two other guys testified, and that was an eye-opening experience too. And all those, all those congressmen and senators on that committee—I mean, they were beating that guy from the IRS. And, but he, he could, he could take it, and not ever answer a question. Just sit there like there was nothing. You know, well, it really wasn't me that did this. You know, it was somebody else. But. They just kept passing the buck. So um, Institute for Justice filed something to get our money back. They filed a petition for remission or mitigation, which are requests for the government to relieve them from a past judgment. Institute for Justice's petition was clear. No American should have their money taken from them just because they deposited it in so-called wrong amounts that they didn't know were wrong and over 10 months passed without a single response from the government so to ramp up pressure the house ways and means committee in a bipartisan fashion both democrats and republicans were outraged by this story called back both randy and the government to testify again that second House Ways and Means Committee meeting, and they were demanding that guy from Justice and IRS to give us our money back. Like I say, they were sitting there like it was just water off their back. They didn't care. But behind the scenes, they did care. They were made to care. They were sweating the negative attention this brought them. And finally, we got our money back, and we were probably the first ones that's ever gotten any, their total amount back. I don't know, they said they apologized. <coughs> they never <coughs> apologized to us for anything. Five years. That's how long it took to get their money back. The Sours' money could have been put to use making their business more money, hiring more workers, and paying their workers more. But the government doesn't pay a fine or interest to account for this fact. 
to account for the fact that because of inflation, the Sours $30,000 became less than $30,000 while the government was holding it for them. So, I believe in God. I am where I am today because God tells me what to do and I listen to him. And the reason why, you know, I fight the government and nobody else will is two things in the Bible. Because God says, no hand held against you will prosper. And in the 23rd Psalm, it says, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that's what he does. It's just, you know, you have to win. Today, you hire lawyers, they're not out there to win. They're out there to get together and compromise and say, okay, if we do it this way, you'll make this much money and I'll make this much money. We don't have to fool around in court and file this paperwork, but we're all going to make money. But there's nobody ever wins. And you have to win. This country that we know is not like it used to be. And it's going to be nothing is what it's going to be. It's going to be just like any other country. You're not going to have any rights. You're not going to run a business. And that's why Randy is so grateful that the Nonprofit Institute for Justice is there fighting to win. For him and for the over 200 other citizens whom the government had their backs up against the wall and couldn't afford to fight them until Institute for Justice took up their case at no cost to them and with no reward ever going to the nonprofit. Institute for Justice is a bunch of young lawyers that are concerned about this country. And I've met a good many of them and they all have the same outlook. I mean, they're not out there to make a lot of money. I, don't know, I have no idea how much money they make. I don't care. Most all their money comes in donations from people that like what they see and not people like me because I don't have a lot of money to give them. I mean, people think I have a lot of money. I mean, so now I live in a big house, but you know, the house came with the land we bought. And I didn't really want the house, it's too big. That's why I'm living there, just two of us because nobody else wanted to live in it. But you know, the people, what people think about farmers is, is ridiculous because they think you're rich because you got big machines and it costs a lot of money and that's why you're not rich because you got to have those machines to do what you do. And great work as always, Alex. And what a story. By the way, a major bank CEO confidentially told us that the government has essentially forced them into being their own private snooping army with their compliance departments having to mine their customers' accounts for what the government might deem suspicious activity, giving them no choice but to report many innocent citizens like Randy Sowers to the government for investigation. The CEO said that this forced snooping sweeps up far more information than anything that the NSA did related to phone records, and yet has received almost zero attention. And that's what we're doing here in Our American Stories, bringing this story to your attention. There's also a big problem of selective prosecution here, the government has seized the bank accounts of innocent farmers like Randy Sowers, but refused to charge politicians like former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who was actually guilty of structuring his payments to prostitutes. And you bet he knew what structuring was. There's bipartisan legislation out there, folks, and it's sponsored by Democrats like Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz. And that doesn't happen too often. So that's how bad this prosecutorial abuse is, folks. Of course, that would change the statute 
so that you can't be charged for a crime that you don't know is a crime. It's called mens rea, folks. It's the heart of criminal law. If you don't know a crime's a crime, you can't be charged with it. This is Lee Habib, Randy Sauer's story, and thank goodness for the Institute for Justice. Look them up, folks. Give them some money. They do great, great work protecting property rights for Randy and maybe one day for people like you. Again, this is Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment of The McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, well, you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob, who's a Marine, shares a story about his dad, who also happens to be a Marine. After getting my dad settled in the living room for a short visit after my parents' divorce, my father and I sat on the couch to have a beer and watch some TV. Sitting next to him, I noticed how much he'd aged. His six-foot-two-inch frame, combined with his broad shoulders and chest, gave no hint that he had lost any of his power. But he was heavier and softer. His hair was graying, and the creases in his face were deeper. As he leaned forward on the couch to reach his beer and cigarettes, I had to admire how formidable he still looked. He was aware of what was happening to him, but he didn't care. He had no interest in prolonging a life that he felt had exhausted its excitement and purpose. He'd become bored. There were no more wars to fight, no more women to love or children to raise. Left without these, his passion for life was diminished and his interest in life had become lackluster, so he saw no sense in prolonging it. Life had become a still photo rather than a motion picture. His coming to a visit instilled some real anxiety in me. I knew what to expect from him. As the chain of command drove the hierarchy in his house growing up, it would be like that here. He'd want it that way. In his house or under his command, he was like a giant redwood tree and very little grows underneath those trees. They are so big they gather all the sunlight for themselves. He was used to giving orders and having them followed. But now I was 26 years old. I was a former Marine and a senior in college, and I'd been living on my own and taking care of myself for the last eight years. Coming to visit my home would be my dad's turn. It would be his turn to move over. My father would tell us boys that the changing of command from father to son would be inevitable. Let me tell you something, kid, that a day will come when you're not going to want to do what I tell you to do, and on that day, you're going to leave, because if I lose control to one of you, 
I won't be able to control the other two. That day came when I was 18. I blocked the doorway that he was trying to pass through on his way to the kitchen. I stood in the doorway and my chest really expanded. I thrust it in front of him. We stood face to face looking into each other's eyes. He said, so you think you're ready to take on your own man now? Is that what this little display of yours is all about? Well, let me tell you something. At my age, I don't care anymore about winning or losing. What you need to know is I'm not going to go easy. I'm going to get a piece of you even if I have to bite it off. You're not going to get out of this pain free. You need to think about whether it's worth it to you. Staring into his unblinking metallic blue-gray eyes, I thought over what he said and decided, yeah, it's time to step aside and let my father go on his way. My father knew that the key weapon in, in intimidation is that just a pinprick of doubt will burst the overinflated balloon of self-confidence. Living in San Francisco in 1974 was very different than the life on the farm my father led as a young man. Life in the city was about freedom and audacity, not regulation and authority. There was nothing that was clean or sterile. Order was not part of the day's routine. And traditional roles? <laughs> well, traditional roles and values were best left back in your hometown. My roommate returned from work after 2 a.m. the night my father arrived and joined us at the kitchen table for a drink. Sitting around the kitchen table, my father reached into his pocket and produced an empty key ring. Tossing it onto the table, he said, Look at that. That's something you don't see every day. An empty key ring. No more house. No more office. No more car. I left with only my suitcase. Billy, yeah, of course. I'd already given away all my clothes, so there was very little to pack. At least she didn't throw them out in the street or the driveway like she used to do. Well, she can have it all, including the car payments, house payments, electrical bill, and all that crap that goes with those things. I have my suitcase, and that's all I want. I went overseas with far less. The night after my dad's arrival, I invited my girlfriend and a couple friends over to meet him. Sitting around the kitchen table having a few drinks was an easy way to introduce my father. Sharing drinks at a bar, around a table, talking, that was his element. After everyone imbibed a few pops, he answered questions about his life, and he started to tell a story about his time in the military police. I looked over at my girlfriend sitting next to me and I started to run my fingers through her hair. I commented to her about how beautiful she looked. She didn't respond or pay any attention to me, as she seemed fascinated by the story. A phone call from a hotel to the Kingston police asking for help. The desk clerk at a local hotel reported that a woman was with a Marine upstairs in her room, screaming, you murderer, oh my God, you murderer. The door was locked and bolted on the inside, and the hotel clerk was afraid of what he might find inside. He wanted the MPs and the police to come immediately. He continued, in the hall we could hear sobbing inside the room, but there were no other noises. 
We pounded on the door until she screamed, You murderer, you animal. Help, help. We whipped our weapons right out, unlocked the safety, pulled the hammer back, and I heard my body back and shouldered it into the door to get it open. And the three of us exploded into the room with our guns searching for a target. With our weapons locked and loaded, we quickly surveyed the room, but found no one other than the sobbing woman sitting alone on the edge of the bed. She raised her arms. He's in there, she said, as she pointed to the bathroom. He's in there. I ordered the other two MPs to cover the door as I burst into the bathroom. Looking down the barrel of my forty-five, I only saw a drunken Marine sitting on the floor in my gun sights. Sitting between the toilet and the wall with his arm around the back of the water pipe, he looked up at me and with a smile on his face he waved his arm and said, Hiya, Sarge. We all had our guns pointed at him until we realized he was unarmed and certainly too drunk to stand up. I demanded to know, what the hell's going on here, Marine? With his free arm, the Marine pointed inside the toilet bowl and said, Look. We all leaned forward to peer into the bowl and to our amazement there was a small orange duckling the couple had won at a local fair swimming around the inside of the bowl. The drunk Marine said, Watch this, Sarge. With the arm around the water pipe, he reached up and pulled the cord on the water closet. The sound of the flush unleashed a torrent of screams from the woman in the room as the water was sucked down the drain. The duck, caught in the whirlpool, started swimming faster and faster against the suction of the vortex in an effort to stay afloat. The faster the water drained, the faster that duck paddled. In spite of his struggle to paddle fast enough, though, to keep him from being flushed down the drain, he was eventually sucked down the drain and disappeared. The bathroom became quiet as the bowl started to refill. Mystified, all eyes remained transfixed on the now empty and quiet bowl which had just swallowed the duckling. What the hell are you doing here? He said he demanded. Marine just sat there next to the toilet laughing so hard he could care less about the prospect that he was going to be arrested and hauled off to the brig. The woman in the other room, she just continued sobbing about her boyfriend's cruelty until the water refilled the bowl. When the water level was restored and the toilet bowl quieted down, out of the depth of the drain, the duck suddenly popped up and continued to paddle around in this porcelain pond as if nothing had happened. As the crowd sat around the table laughing, a friend approached and asked, Hey, is it cool to smoke some pot? I mean, I know your dad was a Marine and military policeman and all that, but is he cool? The reality of cultural and generational clash became real clear to me now. If I could have imagined at that moment that his few days' visit would turn into his becoming my roommate for the next 18 months, I would have thrown all his clothes out on the driveway and bought him a one-way bus ticket back to my mom. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a storyteller. And you can just see all this in your head, and I'm sure, I'm sure we all see different things. But my goodness, that little duckling going down, and then the stillness and the silence and then it emerging, and this culture clash, the 1970s, San Francisco. Yeah, it's probably everything you think when I say that. And here comes this old school Marine to crash with his son. 
And we look forward to more from Bob McClellan. It's the McClellan Files. And by the way, there are storytellers like this in every community. I bumped into Bob. I was supposed to meet him and talk about this or that. I'd heard he was a good writer. I stayed with him for five hours, and I said, Bob, you need to be a regular contributor on our American stories. And so if you know somebody like Bob, if you are Bob, have stories that are compelling and beautiful and frightening, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We're interested in hearing them because you are the hour in our American stories. We love hearing the stories from ordinary Americans. Again, the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, especially your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll help you record them. And this next story comes from a listener named Karen Cutler Drektra, who listens to us on WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Here's Karen on her father, Jim. There are rare moments of happiness in a hospital, especially in the room of an 89-year-old man with dementia. But even there, once in a while, you are blessed with a golden memory that almost makes the experience worth it. I need to preface what happened by letting you in on a long-running family joke. When my sister and I were young, we'd always ask Dad what his favorite song was, even though we knew what the answer would be. The Kentucky Waltz, he would always reply. My father grew up in southern Illinois, near the Kentucky border, during the 1930s through the early 1950s, and his primary source of entertainment was the Grand Old Opry on the radio. In the late 1950s, my father moved to northeastern Wisconsin and married my mother, but brought his love for country music with him. So, for most of our young lives, we grew up listening to country music. However, the Kentucky Waltz was never heard on any of the country music stations here. There's no such thing as the Kentucky Waltz, we'd tease him. You must be thinking of the Tennessee Waltz. And then all of us would start singing at the top of our lungs. I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee Waltz. However, Dad kept insisting there was such a song as the Kentucky Waltz, but he couldn't remember the words or the melody. Since this was the early 1970s, before Google and the World Wide Web, Dad would ask various musicians, listen to country music radio stations, and look at every single song selection on jukeboxes, but never came across the Kentucky Waltz. Fast forward 45 years. 
Both my sister and I had long forgotten about teasing Dad on the existence of this song. He had had a few mini-strokes, and, according to various scans and tests, his brain had shrunk. We finally got him into an assisted living facility, but he couldn't understand why he was there, and fought with everyone almost the entire time. Since my sister and her family lived in Las Vegas, I was the closest living sibling, so I ended up being the person who was called when he was acting up. I didn't mind at the beginning, but it started to be four to five times a week, and I didn't want to resent my father for something he couldn't help, but I was beginning to. However, after a few months of living there, his health declined to the point of him being in the hospital, and my sister flew in to be by his bedside. Now, sitting next to my incoherent father, as he was babbling nonsense about people's names I didn't recognize, I had my nose buried deep into my cell phone, playing some game to distract me on how heartbroken I was sitting there listening to him. I did finally recognize a couple of the names he whispered of people he knew growing up in southern Illinois, though they were people I had never met and had long since passed away. At this particular moment, it was just Dad and me in the room. My sister had left to take a break and get us some coffee downstairs. Out of nowhere, he started to sing. We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon My head snapped to attention. I thought, what is he singing? I never heard this song before. Suddenly, all those memories of car rides, which ended with us laughing at Dad about the song that didn't exist, came flooding into my brain. I grabbed my phone and went directly to YouTube. I entered the Kentucky Waltz in search, and there it was, staring me in the face, a video of the Osborne brothers singing the Kentucky Waltz. I turned up the volume and Dad's eyes became more focused and moist. He started singing at the top of his lungs all the words to the song right along with the music. He didn't miss one word after 60 years of not hearing it. My sister came through the door and asked, what's going on? I can hear Dad singing all the way down the hall. Wait, Dad's singing? I quickly filled her in on what happened, and I immediately replayed the video, which, of course, Dad then started singing again. We both started to cry and laugh at the same time. Dad looked at both of us and said, Why are you guys laughing so hard? I told you this was my favorite song. We had a great afternoon with him. He was able to hold a conversation. We laughed, we cried, we created the last happy memory I have of him. He made somewhat of a turnaround and was able to be released to a memory center and a nursing home. Dad died three months later, but when I'm missing him or just feeling lonely for family, the gift of that song helps chase those sad feelings away. I've played the song so many times, I also know, know all the words by heart and sing at the top of my lungs. 
We were waltzing last night in Kentucky Beneath the beautiful harvest moon And I was a boy that was lucky been listening to Karen Cutler Drectra and her story about her father in a song. And Karen is a listener at WHBY 1150 AM in Appleton, Wisconsin. Her story, her father's story, and the story of a song, one of our best so far, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories, and we have previously brought you the story of the world's most innovative school, the Acton Academy, and you can hear that story at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we bring you a childhood story from its co-founder, Jeff Sandifer. And here's Jeff. I was born and raised in Abilene, Texas, a small town of 100,000 people out in West Central Texas to a father I loved dearly, but who was almost out of the movies in the sense of he was like the movie giant, if you've ever seen it, where um, he was an oil wildcatter. And so we were rich one year and broke the next, even though he never let on. <laughs> so, uh, so it was a middle, upper middle class background, but with a dad who was in all good ways and bad ways, a gambler and an entrepreneur. I remember coming back from business school and oil prices had crashed and by then I could kind of read a balance sheet and an income statement and I said, Dad, look, you're broke. I mean, oil prices have crashed and I said, you really need to sell your airplane. And he said, well, son, I'll tell you one thing. I may be going to the poor house, but they better have a runway because I'll be damned if I'm going to drive there. (laughs) So, and he didn't sell the airplane and he made his way back out of it. And so, you know, later in life I knew, I think early, you know, Kids know. Kids know when families are having trouble. Kids know when the father or the mother are having financial problems. But it's often an unspoken knowing. And so um, I had a wonderful childhood, but I'm certain that I picked up the tension of the times when he was scrambling what that felt like. And he was ultimately very successful. It was just every time he would get ahead, he loved the game. So he would bet more. You know, he would keep betting to get further ahead. And then every once in a while, he would lose his stake and have to start over. And uh, that's just the way he was built. It was not my decision to work. I was a very good student, but despite that, uh, he insisted I go work in the oil field. And so I went out every day as a small guy and worked with roustabouts who'd been paid minimum wage, working from, as we said out there, from can see to can't see, from whenever the sun came up to whenever the sun went down. And I hated every minute of it. And it was one of the most formative things in my life because I learned that, you know, there are people that work very hard every day and bless them. I mean, you know, it's actually, I admire that, but it's hard. I remember I had um, one day it rained and it doesn't rain in the summer very often in Abilene, but it rained and we couldn't go out on the truck to do the hard manual labor. My boss was named Armando. And, you know, being that I was a middle-class white kid, I was probably wasn't his favorite. 
and they're all going to go inside and play cards, so I get to watch them play cards. I knew I couldn't play because I was only 15, but I could watch. And Armando said, oh, Junior, call me Junior, he said, see that big stack of rocks over there? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I would like for you to move them to the other side of the yard. So these big giant rocks. And so I spent all morning in the rain moving those rocks. And I got finished and I thought, finally I get to go outside. And Armando came out and he said, oh, Junior, I am very sorry. I've decided I like the rocks back where they were. So I spent the afternoon and every rock I moved, I was more determined I was gonna work for myself from then on and no one was ever gonna boss me around like that again. So Armando, you know, whether he did it on purpose or not, I'll never know, but did me a great service because moving those rocks, I was determined after that, you know, I was gonna be my own boss. My guess is that it, he, he did a lot of other things that showed he didn't like me very much, and I probably wouldn't have liked me either, so I don't blame him. But, uh, but I, do, I do remember moving those rocks all afternoon back to where they'd been in the first place. We were being paid $2.35 an hour, which was pretty good because minimum wage was $1.65 then. And I had worked about a 60-hour week because, as I said, we were working long hours. And I calculated to the penny what I was due, and I got my first check. And it didn't add up. And so I went to see my boss, and I said, look, I worked this many hours, overtime's time and a half, and for more than time and a half, I get even double time. And, and, he, and I said, well, you're missing some money. And he said, um, well, that's, we take that out for taxes. And I've been mad about that ever since. So uh, I just I couldn't believe they took a third of my paycheck out for taxes. Yeah, I've got dreams of things that I would do that would just be simple fixes, things like term limits. But one of the ones I would love to have is we just move tax time and voting both to March 15th. Because then you could have your year-end taxes calculated. And right before you vote, you write a lump sum check of whatever your taxes are, sales tax, all your taxes, and then you go vote. And that way it would be very visible to everyone right before they voted of how much you paid for all the services and you could decide whether you wanted that, whether you were well served or not. I think it would fix a lot of problems. So after about three years of uh, working in the sun, I had very much tired of that. And, uh, and I can remember the, the, the last summer I really worked as a laborer we started out breaking oil field line pipe, and this is pipe that kind of runs along the surface. And in those days, it was big heavy metal pipe. And so we were taking up an old pipeline and we would break off one joint of pipe and you could barely pick it up and put it on the truck. And you could look over the horizon and the pipeline just kept going. And so I wasn't very big again, so I had to jump on the wrenches to break the pipe out and pick it up. When we started that summer, you could see over the horizon we worked all summer on that pipeline. At the end of the summer, you could still see all the way over the horizon. So however many miles of pipe we picked up, it didn't appear to have made any difference. So I noticed that at that job, the workers were all paid minimum wage and did their best to smoke dope and hang out and you know, be paid by the hour, so why not? And it took about three days for a normal painting job to paint a normal uh, oil tank. Well, I went out and I recruited high school football coaches the next summer. My high school football coaches agreed to pay them by the tank and they hired their players. And so they would get out to the lease at dawn. They could paint three tanks in one day, not one tank in three days, so a nine times productivity gain. I put on a coat and tie and went and saw all of the oil operators and convinced them we could clean up their leases. We charged about two thirds the price of our competitors. 
because we had our cost structure was so much lower. And so that summer, we made $100,000 in revenue. We netted $80,000 before taxes. Still best business I've ever had profit margin wise. The coaches made three times as much as they would have made all year working as coaches. Um, and had the very good fortune that this is now 1978-79, oil prices have gone up in the early 70s and now you have the oil embargo. So now all the operators have a lot of money and they've never cleaned up their leases. So this was kind of as often happened in my life. I got really lucky with a good idea at the right time and therefore we got to paint a lot of tanks. You have to be prepared. I just, I, I've just always been stunned at how lucky I am. So I'm not sure I'm stunned by how prepared I am, but I just get, uh, I do believe the luckier, the more you believe you're lucky, you actually see more opportunities. And so there's research that suggests people who think they're lucky actually have better outcomes. But I think it's related to the vision, and I don't mean long-term vision, I mean even up close. You expect to see good things and you see things other people don't see. But in any event, I know I've been really lucky. And most importantly, I got to stay in the air conditioning in the truck and I didn't have to work out in the field anymore. So that was, that was kind of my first real business and it was a lot of fun. And it was just as simple as changing the incentives. I mean, that's really all we did is we changed the incentives and it changed everything. Now we did have a little quality control problem that these coaches would paint anything silver that moved. So, I mean, they would paint tanks, they would paint gates, they would paint cows, they would paint, so, you know, like with anything, incentives matter and then incentives will create unintended consequences. They painted the ground a lot. And other things. It was not high quality paint. Uh, we had to really come back to them and set some quality standards or getting paid by the tank, right? They would paint them as quickly and as poorly as they could get away with. So the story's fun to tell, but there were lots of bumps along the way. Uh, I do remember seeing one of those coaches my senior year, which was the, after that summer, and uh, he was the weight coach. So you can imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean, he was, you know, and he had on a beret and everybody was scared of him, but of course he worked for me. I said, oh, hey coach, where'd you get that hat? And he said, oh, you like that, do you? And I said, no, I just asked where you got it. And so I got to run laps for, for the rest of the day. So my employee-employer relationship did not uh, extend to the uh, football field or the track circle. So as long as we each knew our role, I think, and the incentives were okay, we were okay in the oil field. And then I needed to, it was my fault that I didn't understand that didn't transfer out to the uh, athletic fields. Nor should it have, by the way. I, he was right. I should have run laps for being a smart aleck. And you've been listening to Jeff Sandifer. And my goodness, what a life story. Abilene, Texas, where we have good friends. If you ever get a chance, go just outside Abilene to Perini's. It's a terrific steak joint. and It's got this giant metal armadillo in the front of it. You won't forget it. And we love Texas. We love the whole country here. It's just all beautiful. And it's all so different. And my goodness, the work he's been doing with the Acton Academies. To learn more about these extraordinary schools, visit actonacademy.org. There are now about 150 Actons around the world, and there should be one in every community. And anyone listening can start one. You don't need to be an expert. You don't need to be a PhD, have a license. That's the beauty of Acton Academy. Go to actonacademy.org. You can change the world in your community. You can change the education standards in your community. That's actonacademy.org. Jeff Sandifer's story here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and you're listening to some music by Fred Davis, recorded in the South Euclid, Ohio home of Howard Yusuk back in August of 1969. And you're thinking, who's Howard? Big record producer? Not exactly. These days, Howard is the vice president of research and publications at the Manhattan Institute, a free market think tank in New York. But back in 1969, he was a young man who loved the blues, and he was so impressed by his friend Fred Davis, he wanted Fred's music recorded. That's a friend. Let's hear more about this from Howard himself, here performing a piece published in the City Journal entitled The Fred Davis Blues. I always wondered what might have happened to Fred Davis. I'd be reminded of him by the half-inch, reel-to-reel tape recording of his music, of which I always took special care. I believed that music would be his ticket out of Cleveland's Huff Ghetto. When we lost touch, I assumed that nothing like that had happened. When I finally found out what had happened, it was both better and tragically worse than I'd imagined. He was a childhood friend in a way. We met when I was 19, in the summer before my second year of college. We both made our way early each morning through the stinging, low-hanging smog mist of Cleveland's industrial Cuyahoga River Valley to the factory where we unloaded 100-pound sacks from freight cars, piling them onto wood pallets. But our lives up to that point could not have been much more different. He was about a decade older, came to work by bus, sent by a day labor agency, and he had thick, strong arms that reflected time spent in prison. I drove the old Ford my father had bought me. I strained to lift, knowing that if I failed, I'd reflect badly on my dad, given his executive role in the front office. We learned by chance of our shared enthusiasm for the same music. Southern-born blacks outnumbered hillbillies in the shop, so the radio was tuned to either of Cleveland's two AM rhythm and blues stations. It amused both groups, though, when, to pass the time, I'd sing along, as I did one day to Chains of Love, Bobby Blue Bland's hit single that summer. It's three o'clock in the morning, baby, the moon is shining bright, sitting here wondering, where can you be tonight? It's three o'clock in the morning, baby. Lord, and the moon is shining bright. And oh, oh, it's three o'clock in the morning, baby. And let me tell you, the moon is shining bright. And oh, I was just sitting here wondering, Lord, where can you be tonight? Lord, yeah. I learned that before he'd gone to prison in his hometown of Kansas City, Fred had played piano and guitar there professionally until he said 
he made the innocent mistake of carrying something for someone. Drugs, it turned out. It led to several years in the joint, as he put it, in the parlance of the 1950s hipster, in which an apartment was a crib and a girlfriend an old lady. I saw how well he could play during lunch break one day when I had brought my guitar to the job. When most of the others went across the street to drink, the two of us sat at a table outside where he played and sang. You could hear the Kansas City influence the more you listened. The jazz blues arrangements of Jay McShann confessing the blues. before you with my heart in my hand. I want you to read it, Mama, hoping that you'll understand. Well, baby, Mama, please don't dog me round. I'd rather love you, baby, than anyone else I know in town. The complex arrangements of Dinah Washington what a difference a day makes. What a difference a day makes. Twenty-four little hours. What the sun and the flowers. Harder-edged but still smooth stylings of Lowell Folsom or Eddie Boyd, five long years. Fred had a full set of his own originals, too, and he sang them with a piercing, high, tearful voice from deep, slow blues like Midnight is Falling. complicated tunes, subtle and swinging, with a hint of T-Bone Walker. 
Our relationship evolved to one of teacher and student. He showed me how to play all up and down the guitar using big, rich chords fingered in an unorthodox way, his thumb wrapped under and up the neck. I later taught the fingering to my son, who uses it professionally. He gave stern, uncompromising musical advice. Don't play too loud and don't play too fast. Eventually, we'd spend time together after work at a small house owned by his girlfriend, Bertha Reed, a professional test kitchen cook in the heart of Cleveland's East Side Ghetto. She appreciated my interest in Fred, I think, but it seemed to me that she'd also grown tired and skeptical of his music dreams. He didn't play much around the house, she said. And when we come back, more of Howard Usick's remarkable story about his friend, Fred Davis. This is how music connects people, folks, across every race, across every class. When we come back, more of this great story here on Our American Stories. We've been listening to the story of bluesman Fred Davis and his friendship with Howard Husick back in 1969. As Fred taught Howard more about music and the two grew closer as friends, Howard got an idea. At some point I resolved, idealistically, perhaps patronizingly, to rescue him. It would be my callow mission to restore him to his career in music. This was 1969, the summer of Woodstock. Civil rights, racial justice, they were in the air, even after the King assassination. Obscure blues musicians from Mississippi John Hurt to Magic Sam were being discovered or rediscovered by white enthusiasts and introduced to new audiences. I had a business plan, you might say, to record Fred backed by an amateur blues band of kids I knew from my suburban high school. I asked a friend who had moved to Philadelphia to take the tape to the blues agent, Dick Waterman, who lived there with his then-girlfriend, a young Bonnie Raitt. Waterman expressed interest. I wrote Fred to let him know, and he wrote back in a letter filled with an almost desperate hope. At present, I'm fine and still working like hell. Man, I do hope something comes of that tape just sitting here wishing like hell, but I'm not giving up. I'm still with my old lady, she's tops. Also, I'm still off the alcohol. Well, Cat, I'm gonna close for now, but we'll script you later. You do likewise, and especially if you hear something from the tape. So, until later, always a friend, Fred Davis. I'd kindled his hope and felt responsibility to follow through. I arranged to meet with Waterman myself in Boston. He was tough and unsentimental, 
but sufficiently sold on Fred's music to write a letter on his behalf to Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, which had booked one of his clients, Mississippi blues singer Fred McDowell. Would they add Fred Davis to the program? I found his style to be quite good and a very interesting combination of a Kansas City style that also shows some of his earlier Arkansas home as well, Waterman wrote. If you could possibly use him on your program, I'm sure that his pride would be restored and his very fine music would not be abandoned. A whole new life, I hoped, would open up for Fred. Having moved on from the factory job, though, I never heard how it turned out. I never heard again from Fred. I always wondered, I feared, in fact, that I'd given him false hope, meddling unnecessarily in his life, and perhaps giving the impression that I was much more connected and capable than I was. It was a dynamic of which Dick Waterman was clearly aware, as reflected in his letter to Baldwin Wallace. I have not told Fred that I am writing to you because I don't want him to get his hopes up too high. It was not until just recently, enabled by a subscription to the Ancestry Search Service, that I found out what happened. A review of the digital files of the exponent, Baldwin Wallace College Student Newspaper, reveals that the school's April 10, 1970 folk festival included blues legends, Mississippi Fred McDowell and Muddy Waters, but not Fred Davis. Whether they didn't want to include him, or if he declined for some reason, I can't say. But the story of Fred's fate emerges from public records. An Ohio death certificate dated November 8, 1988, almost 20 years after I knew him, reveals that Fred Davis, 49, identified as a laborer, had died of a gunshot wound to the chest with multiple visceral perforations. A Cleveland Plain Dealer story went further. Two men had robbed him of cash in a liquor store parking lot. When Fred resisted, one of them shot him. Such is the tragedy of talent bleeding out as it does every day in black America. Davis was that year's 122nd homicide in Cleveland. But there was more. Someone had gone to the trouble to write an official newspaper death notice for Fred Dave Davis, son, Oscar and Emma Davis, Kansas City, Missouri, member the Blues Express Band. Blues Express? Had he rebuilt his career after all? Had my encouragement mattered? I could learn the answer to the first question, at least. Blues Express still plays around Cleveland, and I was able to track down its new leader. Crazy Marvin Braxton, he'd taken over after the man he called Dave had died. I was working as a doorman at a hotel downtown, recalls Marvin, when they told me, get to St. Vincent's, that's the charity hospital. Dave's been shot. He was good people, Marvin said, a demanding band leader who always cautioned members, yes, not to play too loud or too fast. With a significant local following, the band played regularly, it turned out, at Fat Fish Blues for mostly white blues devotees, but also at Andy's Lounge in the lower middle class black Buckeye Road neighborhood. Fred had fans, including a pudgy white suburban couple who never missed a gig. He was planning to renovate a new girlfriend's house and to marry her at the time he was shot. He didn't deserve that, 
Why would somebody shoot him, I asked Marvin. Just for the thousand dollars he was carrying? How would they have known? Fred, it turns out, had another side. Everyone needs a hustle, Marvin said. Fred apparently was selling liquor illegally from the back of a car. He'd buy it in bulk from the liquor store that he was going into at the time he was shot. The two cousins who held him up knew about Fred's business from their sister, who was a disappointed girlfriend. When we went to Dave's place, Marvin told me, we found hair powder she'd put under his pillow. It was voodoo. One of the two robbers, the actual shooter, hanged himself in a Cleveland jail. His accomplice was sentenced to five to 20 years for manslaughter. Two years later, in 1992, he sought probation, citing his Lima Correctional Institution Certificate of Achievement for having completed a substance abuse program, as well as the fact that he hadn't been the one who pulled the trigger. He was a Vietnam veteran. His request was denied. It's a tragically familiar story of black-on-black violence. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men in the United States. The statistics are grim, but they can't reveal how much talent and how many dreams die each year on Cleveland's east side, on Chicago's south side, or in so many other neighborhoods. My friend's murder was an obscure act of violence, passingly mentioned in the small newspaper story, yet every day such obscure acts silence talent and potential. Was the Fred Davis I had known the same guy who sold bootleg liquor from his car? Had he really been set up all those years before in Kansas City? A search for legal records or newspaper stories about his criminal case comes up empty. The only record of Fred's life in Kansas City is a yearbook photo, circa 1959, from the city's then all-black Lincoln High School, where he was a member of a clean-cut, neatly-dressed class, many of whom an alumni association website shows have gone on to professional accomplishment, as Fred did in his own way. Located near 18th and Vine, the mecca of Kansas City jazz, Lincoln was the school for college-bound black kids. Records show he'd come from a two-parent family, one of 10 children, born to an Arkansas sharecropper who had moved to Kansas City to work for the railroad. Had he always had a dark side? Perhaps an unjust drug bust had soured him. Perhaps a criminal record kept him from having the sort of day job that other Blues Express members had. Maybe he just couldn't stand menial work, not when he knew what it felt like to write a great song and sing the way he could. I still have that tape. It's been transferred and digitized. You can listen to it now on SoundCloud. Just search for Cleveland Blues, Fred Davis. The Lincoln High Alumni Association may be honoring him. I'm interested in recognizing him and for his music to be played again. I admit it, I'm still trying to save Fred Davis. And what a story. And thank you, Howard, for sharing that with us. And we'll do our best by playing Fred's music right now. Howard Usick's story. 
Fred Davis's story, and sadly, as Howard pointed out, when people get shot like this or killed like this, it's the talent that gets lost. It's a human life that's lost. We can never forget that amongst the grim statistics. He was the 122nd male African-American, many of them in Cleveland, gunned down in 1988. A life cut short, talent cut short. And so we leave with all of us listening to Fred Davis here on Our American Stories. Sometimes I just wonder 